Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I am here as usual with my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing good. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Mike Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist for Simplify Asset Management. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Cass. So so glad to be here and uh, sharing in the crime of crypto. It's partners in crime. Exactly. I have two partners today. Bennett, do you mind starting starting us out today? Sure. I'll start it off. Mike, uh, what risks do you think are underappreciated by most cryptocurrency investors? Well, I, I think the core risk is one that's actually been exposed by Canada today, right? Which is that governments actually serious governments decide to get serious about crypto. And, and you know, this has been one of the frustrating dynamics is since I first became involved in this space or discussing this space, I've, I've tried to emphasize to people that as far as I can tell, the primary mechanism or primary feature of Bitcoin in particular, and also, you know, a lot of the other dynamics around participation in exchanges, et cetera, is that whether it is intentional or not, people are functionally raising their hands and saying, we want to engage in what's perceived as seditious activity. We want to, you know, do things that our government doesn't necessarily want us to do. If you're in Venezuela or Lebanon, that's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, the governments are not capable of tracking you down in those situations. They certainly can come to your door with jackbooted thugs and beat down your door and subject you to torture that you may not experience in the developed world. But the realistic risks of being tracked down as a money launderer or as a unlicensed uh, distributor and money transfer service are quite low in those regimes, which is why you see those regimes being the center of money laundering activity and drug distribution and everything else, right? In the developed world, what you've largely seen is governments ignoring the problems and issues associated with crypto to this point, and that feels like it's changing very rapidly. And, and just in all seriousness, that feels like the biggest underappreciated risk and the second component that I tie to that is the narrative that exists around that, which is people in the space saying, well, that's completely unreasonable that the government would do that. If the government does that, then they're, you know, truly, you know, a Leviathan that is, you know, um, evil and they should be resisted, right? Like, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Most of the regulations that were put in place across the financial system were put there to protect participants. They weren't there to try to, you know, stamp you down and, and prohibit you from investing in lucrative investment opportunities. You know, things like accredited investors who have to have a certain level of income or wealth before they're able to invest in speculative, certain types of speculative activities, whether that's a private equity fund or venture capital or various other things. That's not being done because people who have money hate you. Right, is being done because there's just so much evidence of fraud and scams that there's an that, that a line was drawn. You may disagree with that line. You can certainly lobby to have that changed, and I applaud people who are willing to do that. But it's not that people were that these restrictions were put in place to keep people down. They were there because the incidence of fraud in the it, with the lack of regulation tends to be so high that it was just expedient to say, let's cut it out. Let's not do it. Right. I mean, it's fantastic that you can use Bitcoin for transferring. I had a discussion with somebody today, like I use Bitcoin to transfer $10,000, you know, in a real estate transaction that cost me less than 50 cents. And it, it, it took no time whatsoever. I transferred it from one of my accounts to another account. And it was, you know, much, much, much easier than doing a bank wire transfer. And, and my reaction to them was like, okay, well, wait a second. One, why do you think that number was 10,000? Two, you transferred money from one of your accounts to another account. Like, you know, that's not that impressive. If you tried doing that with $100 million under the framework that you just described, you just broke any number of laws, right? And the reason why a bank wire transfer has all the problems of know your customer and, you know, did you really mean to transfer this $100 million? And we're not entirely sure you should be allowed to transfer this $100 million. What are the uses and purposes of it? All the things that make people say, well, who, what the hell is it your business, right? That's there because they don't want arms merchants and drug dealers and everybody else doing it, right? It's just, 
it's, you know, if you're Citibank transferring $100 million is not hard for a very simple reason. You do it all the time. So we, we, we inhabit this world where, unfortunately, the language of lack of trust of institutions has created conditions under which people are uniquely exposed to an actual crackdown. And it feels like that's starting to happen. Well, your your answer uniquely segued us into one of my questions, which was I, I was specifically I saw you chatting about it earlier, the the Canadian trucker convoy situation. And for anyone who isn't paying attention to it, I, the idea is that there's um, a lot of truckers in Canada who who can't uh, they have to get vaccinated, basically, is what the government is telling them. They have to get vaccinated for corona for coronavirus, and they don't want to. And so they've put up a, essentially a protest. They've gone into Ottawa, and they've they've gone onto bridges and stopped uh, traffic between Canada and the U.S. and And they've um, made a lot of noise about this. And there's a lot of people. It seems like there's a lot of people who agree agree with them and think they shouldn't have to do this. Regardless, I'm not trying to touch on on that part of this story. What what I am trying to talk about, though, is that uh, they tried to have a GoFundMe that got shut down, and then they tried a different funding mechanism that also got shut down. Now they resorted to utilizing funding through Bitcoin, and now, what was it, 20 wallets or so, got blacklisted by the Canadian government. And so I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that in general, I guess, uh, what, what, it, what it means, why it does drive home the points that you were mentioning before, but also what that means for Bitcoin in general. Um, well, so I, I think Bitcoin is actually an, an ancillary component of that story, right? And so I like, I want to emphasize, and I hopefully this has been clear on Twitter, like I actually deeply support the Canadian truck driver's right to protest. I deeply support the message that they're actually protesting, the the introduction of mandated vaccines of dubious utility in an environment in which we are increasingly post-pandemic, right? The statistic came out today that something like 75% of the United States is already Omicron resistant. And we know the way these things work, and it does feel that this is excessive. We don't have mandatory vaccinations for the flu. We don't, you know, et cetera. Right? It feels very arbitrary. And that's one of the things that I think is very clear in people's resistance to this behavior is not actually that this is a principled stance that says, hey, you need to have your immunization against polio. Right? What they're actually saying is this does not seem rational to me that I'm being forced to do this one particular thing. I'm fully supportive of that message, and I'm fully supportive of civil disobedience against the behavior of the Canadian government. But we got to be really clear about a couple of things. One is, it is a commercial driver's license, right? By definition, you actually have to follow the rules that the state has set down in order to be a commercial driver and to have a commercial driver's license that allows you to do the job whatsoever. They can change those rules so that you're required to be able to stand on your head for 30 minutes at a time if they wanted to. It's a terrible policy choice. I would not support it in the least, but they do actually have that right. And by virtue of having gotten licensed in the first place, you've already ceded that authority to them. Right. So like, I, I really think that's a really critical component that people tend to forget on this. The second component is if you decided as a commercial driver's licensed vehicle driver to park your semi on, in the middle of a bridge and walk away from it and say, hey, I'm here to protest, you would probably almost certainly, regardless of vaccination or anything else, have your CDL suspended or withdrawn. You're not allowed to commit traffic violations as a commercial driver, you know, as a commercial driver. Like, so we're kind of in this silly place where, like, they've already ceded authority by getting a draw a job that requires a certain degree of licensing. Now you can have a very disciplined civil disobedience that says we refuse to take the test, we refuse to participate in these jobs. Those create shortages, and that's going to force reform. And I hope that's the direction that this is heading. But so far, a lot of that has been lost in the process. The second component around Bitcoin itself, what has come out far more clearly 
is that when the government decides, hey, this is actually something serious, and then you try to use the theoretical anonymity of Bitcoin, the speed of, and ease of use, the chaos that emerged around it is not dissimilar to the chaos that emerged in El Salvador when they pronounced Bitcoin the official currency and the Chivo system went down and the ATMs couldn't be accessed and people basically you know, fraudulently withdrew money, stealing IDs and everything else, right? All of this is completely predictable for a system that is far more enamored of its theoretical potential than in developing any practical applications. And I, I would just suggest that more than anything else is what we've seen. Like we saw printers busted out where they're trying to hand out, you know, slips of paper that have keys so that people can access the Bitcoin that was sent to the truckers, right? Like, guys, we're 12 years into this. There is not a usable user interface for anyone who has not decided to do a deep dive into the wallet. And boy, this is super, like, your grandmother cannot use this. That may feel like a feature set to people who want to be part of a mystical priesthood of Bitcoin and everything else, but it's not. That's not the way the world works. And, and by the way, you're actually starting to see like some of the people that you and I find amusing, and I put that in quotes, guys like Nick Carter, et cetera, they're actually suddenly, you're seeing elements of a mea culpa where they're saying, you know, geez, maybe instead of, you know, and excuse my language, jerking off, uh, you know, the, the president of El Salvador, we probably should have been thinking about ways to improve the actual utility of this. And we've underdone it. Well, guess what? You underdid it and you, compete, you, you, you spent your time shouting from the rooftops that the government couldn't stop you in your inevitable conquest of the world. Congratulations. You're universally hated and no one knows what to do with your product. That sounds like a wonderful platform to build from. One of the striking things for me that I noticed in response to initially when the Canadian government uh, used their emergency powers to get the banks to start cutting off access for many of the truckers is how many Bitcoin maxis hailed it as like this major bullish event for Bitcoin, where it was going to um, increase in value as people recognize the value of its censorship resistance in contrast to the banking system. And from what I've heard, many of the truckers don't have anything they can really spend the Bitcoin on. And without access to the banking system and the fiat system, they're not able to convert the Bitcoin into things they can actually spend. And so because like you're talking about, there was not the work done to develop the ability to spend and use Bitcoin. And I think this is partially due to like the narrative around Bitcoin is digital gold. You've ended up with this asset that is censorship resistant in the sense that you can send it to whoever you want, but it fails in the sense that the receiver often can't actually use it to accomplish much. And so I think that's a really excellent point you're drawn there. Well, I, I, I think that's important. And I also, I do think your analogy, your, your identification of digital gold, like, you know, just for the sake of argument, imagine that I had filled up a briefcase with Canadian maple leaves and, you know, walked out into the, the, the protests and started handing them out, right? Like, would people be happy to receive them? Yeah. Hey, that's fantastic. This guy's handing out, you know, Canadian maple leaves. An ounce of gold is worth 2000 bucks each. You know, how lucky am I? Are they going to take the maple leaf to the local convenience store and get a, you know, supersized Slurpee and um, a Slim Jim to, to tide them over as they wait for the opportunity to use the bathroom? Like, no, they can't do that. It's not useful. So, you know, I don't think this is actually necessarily a Bitcoin versus gold as much as it is a, like, it is not a currency. It cannot be used for all the reasons that you said. But guess what? Hey, fantastic. Those, those truckers now, you know, potentially have Bitcoin and without access to their banking system, their wealth will be preserved. Right? So... <laughs> Wonderful. It's a great system. Well, it's funny. It's funny that you're even mentioning this because I feel like the idea of having Bitcoin be a useful currency, they, they gave up on that a, a long time ago. Of course. That hasn't been a reality that any of them perceive or want or desire like the maxis. They do. They they pivoted to digital gold or or, or whatever, but store of value. It, it, they stopped thinking it should be a way to move money. And as you're saying now, if you get rid of that, part of the usefulness just kind of gets destroyed along with it. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's I think that's right. I, I would take issue with the idea of the the ability to move money because I do think that's actually exactly what it's used for, right? It is a it's a phenomenal tool if you happen to reside outside of a functional government, a functioning government, and you want to ship ten million dollars worth of proceeds, you know, into a banking system where you've paid off a local bank clerk that allows your money to slip in in a variety of ways, or you can use a you know a coin washer and an exchange to launder your Bitcoin into Tether and then subsequently make a withdrawal, all in the hopes that you're that that you're not going to get caught in the process. If you're outside the United States or outside Canada or outside, you know, a lot of functioning regimes, yeah, it can actually do that pretty well. I'm not sure why that matters to you as the vast majority of US citizens or Canadian citizens for that matter. That uh, brings up another good point though, because you and I, what we generally would talk about before when we were talking regularly was, uh, was China and yeah. Bitcoin. Yep. And I, th I think that has changed drastically. And it does have to do with something you're talking about right now, which is functional governments can make decisive, they can take decisive action when they so please. So when we were talking, it seemed like China was happy to have all this hash rate there. That hash rate is now gone, right? So what, what is your take on all of that? Well, so I, I'm going to actually push back. I mean, this is this is one of the wonderful things that has happened and, and continues to happen in places. It's almost like a, a, a joke, right? Only in the land of Bitcoin could this sort of stuff happen, right? So this the hash rate that you're referring to is effectively the processing capability of the network. You know, we just the other day, we saw a, an unexplainable jump of give or take 25% of the total network capacity suddenly showed up. How does that happen? Is that happening because there's a massively decentralized series of pools that come on? Is it because China actually is running processing capacity? We know that that's, you know, again, if I look at the Cambridge official studies, they say there's zero hash rate in China. We know that's not true, right? So this transition that supposedly occurred from China banning it has, has not actually fully happened. Russia just came on and said, hey, we're licensing, we're going to have an official Bitcoin. Like, do we think this is because Russia has suddenly decided to embrace freedom and, and the importance of, you know, their, the, the ability for individuals to access a, you know, global banking system? Of course not. They're worried that they're going to be cut off in one form or another if a Ukraine situation accelerates and gets worse. And guess what? They can use the Bitcoin network in lieu of the SWIFT system for whatever purposes they would like to. I just keep coming back to the dynamic of this is not a system that is built for banking the unbanked. It is a system that has unique characteristics that are super useful for people who want to engage in bad behavior. And I, I can't emphasize enough, I'm not suggesting that every individual the roughly 100 million people that are actively involved in crypto, I'm willing to bet that 99 million of them, plus a sizable fraction of the remaining million, are actually good players and they feed their families properly and they're looking for a solution to various problems that they're dealing with in their life, whether that's access to banking systems or that's access to appropriately volatile speculative activities that give them the opportunity to participate in hope for a better life. Like Those are all important features but that's not the vast majority of what's actually happening there. That's not why the network was built. It's, it's built to serve that 0.2% that are actually engaged in the vast majority of bad behavior. I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction here because I was reading some of your writings from last year in preparation for this call. And so I would, I'd love it if you could describe what you see as some of the differences between inflation now and the inflation that occurred during the 1970s. Yeah, okay. So this is one of these really interesting dynamics, right? Because, and, and people ask me, it's like, well, what causes inflation? And the reason why inflation is hard is because there is no single one cause of inflation. And inflation that occurs in the aftermath of the loss of capacity in a war like we had in the 1920s in, in Germany, where they lost significant productive capacity, had fixed obligations they needed to meet outside in terms of reparations, and at the same time, somehow or another, needed to put enough money into the hands of people so that they could actually buy food and try and engage in that sort of stuff. We hear this over and over again 
in environments that enter into hyperinflationary dynamics, the money printing is actually a solution to nothing, you know, to something that just doesn't exist, right? People don't have the money to buy bread, food, et cetera. And so it needs to be printed, right? It is a bandage in the hope that things get better. What happened in the 1970s is something that is very unique in the 1960s and 1970s is something that was really, really unique on a global basis, which is the aftermath of World War II, which had devastated populations, and to a certain extent, World War I and the Spanish flu had created conditions under which global population had slowed significantly the reproductive dynamics, particularly in regions of the world that were caught up in the global conflict, had fallen. And in the aftermath of this, we saw baby booms around the world, right? Those baby booms were very unique in their features because governments spent money to lower the cost of people having families and children, subsidized transportation systems to the suburbs and the exurbs that made available significantly more land for people to raise their families in, a housing market that was facilitated by innovations in mortgage finance, the introduction of things like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that facilitated borrowing by the average American who historically would have had to save 50% down, suddenly could get by with 20% down with standardized fixed 30-year mortgage, the dynamics of the GI Bill that facilitated many of these components as well, right? So lots of stuff happened that basically created conditions under which people had a lot of kids. And at the same time, the innovations in healthcare particularly sterilization that, that happened in the late 19th century and the introduction of antibiotics, which people tend to forget, kill, you know, you, you had a very high probability of dying of some random disease when you hit your mid thirties because you contracted tuberculosis or whatever, right? Antibiotics took all that away. And so we had a baby boom that became the boomer generation on a global basis because we had more kids and those kids survived. And so we ended up having this fantastic shift in population that happened not just in the United States, but across the developed world. And then we further drove those dynamics through the Green Revolution that in a Malthusian framework lowered the cost of feeding a family, raised incomes around the developing world and created conditions under which populations exploded, right? So if you just think about that in your simplest economic textbook, that outward shift in population, that outward shift in economically active individuals, because civil rights introduced women into the labor force, the pill suddenly created conditions under which they could maintain their own households and engage in activities that they previously hadn't. If you're a 22-year-old woman and you want to have sex and you don't want your parents to see it because you're still living at home, you want your own apartment, right? That had never happened before in history. So we had this fantastic outward shift in the aggregate demand curve that had just never happened before in history, right? And it was that outward shift in the aggregate demand curve that powered the rising prices of the 1960s and 1970s. That's what that inflation was all about. What we're seeing this time around is radically different. We effectively put the global economy to sleep with the exception of China. And we tried to effectively facilitate all the material goods and, and you know, durable products that people could possibly want and tried to get them through the two narrow entrance points, points of the Port of Los Angeles and the point, Port of Long Beach, right? And we, we effectively tried to sustain this for a period of time. And what we're experiencing now is something that you guys are still young enough that you don't fully appreciate. But, you know, as you get older, you go to bed, you fall asleep, you wake up in the morning and you're well rested, but then you go to get out of bed and oh my God, like you creak and it hurts and you've got arthritis. And if you're smart, you'll stretch and you'll do various things to get your body moving. What we're going through right now are the frictional aspects of that getting out of bed, the stretching dynamics, the rebuilding of global supply chains, and that's showing up as shortages all over the place. What's frightening about what's happening right now is that the response to those shortages, which are a byproduct of a poorly planned entrance and exit from that overnight nap, effectively, that going to bed for the global economy, we're beginning to see policymakers decide that they either have to accommodate it by doing things like removing the gasoline tax, which lowers the effective price of gasoline, allowing demand to be sustained, at the same time, the supply is still challenged, right? This, the free market solution to that is the price of gasoline goes really high. People cut back on the consumption of gasoline. 
And guess what? It resolves itself, but at a higher price. At the same time, it stimulates supply, right? Instead, we're trying to smooth this path in a variety of policy choices. That creates a really interesting wrinkle where we've just subsidized developed market consumption of gasoline. And so we can complain about it as Californians or, Bennett, are you there in Southern California as well? No, I'm out in Illinois. You're in Illinois. Okay. So it, it, none of us live in rational states. But the, the simple reality is that we're subsidizing developed market consumption. We're all ridiculously rich on a relative global basis, not within the United States necessarily. That's not what I'm focused on, but relative to elsewhere around the world. And if you tell us that, hey, guess what? It's no problem. We're going to subsidize your gasoline capacity. That makes less available to the rest of the world. And so I would just focus people on as, as much as it sucks to live in California and deal with $5 plus gallon per gasoline. Um, imagine being in Malawi, right? Or Uzbekistan, where they tried removing subsidies because it's going to drain the treasury of Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan generates a significant portion of its foreign currency by exporting fossil fuels and has been forced to actually retreat from its ability to earn hard currency in a global economy that is largely shut down. And again, as they're trying to restart it, they're being forced to service their domestic environment in a you know preferred manner. That's what the that's what, what subsidies are. We see this in in the Middle East, for example. But if you're in a place like Malawi, you're not getting gas. You're a farmer. You can't get your crops to market. You're a resident of a major city in Malawi that relies on those crops being brought to market so that you can feed your family. You're going to starve. That is what is underway. We here in the developed world are shielded and protected from this. And it's one of the incredible ironies of the nonsense around the crypto of, you know, banking the unbanked and helping people around the world. If you look at what's happening in places like Malawi, or you look at what's happening in Madagascar, or you look at what's happening in many of these very poor regions around the world, we are literally going to see a replay of the 1970s, not from the standpoint of a sustained inflation in the developed world, but from the standpoint of the famines that brought, you know, Sally Struthers to our common, you know, mind where we're like watching people die in Ethiopia. That is underway right now. Obviously, and I think we're probably all on the same page with this. Uh, I don't I don't suspect that cryptocurrency is the answer for this, but it also doesn't sound like you're necessarily pessimistic about this. You're not one to be ringing and the end is near, I, 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 susp- I suppose. But I, I, I do want to understand what you think will be, ult- how this will ultimately play out, I guess. Well, so, all right. So first, I don't know that I could get much more um, alarmist than saying people are going to die, right? So like, I just want to be clear, the fact that I'm not saying Caspian and Bennett Tomlin are going to die may feel like I'm de-escalating the situation, but like I really want to emphasize that we are watching a human catastrophe unfold beyond the nonsense of the pandemic. And inevitably, it is the least privileged around the world that are going to suffer through this. The least privileged in the United States are suffering more than those who are among the most privileged. I would consider all of us to be relatively privileged in that dynamic. And so, you know, am I going to be frustrated when my kid comes home and says, hey, dad, I, ha- I need a hundred bucks to fill up the gas tank in the car? I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'm also not going to panic, right? There are places around the world where people are panicking. In terms of crypto, like I just want to emphasize very broadly, I am super supportive of the broader implications of the introduction of secure digital transmission of value the dynamics of transparency that could potentially be introduced, the ability to introduce smart contracts in a manner that takes products that sound super mysterious, things like a structured note or RMBS, you know, structured products that take millions of mortgages and slice them and dice them to create products that have unique stochastic characteristics that truly can be democratized through the dynamics of digitally native securities. And I, I, I really want to emphasize, I couldn't be more excited. I wish I was 20 years younger so that I could spend a significant fraction of my time not managing traditional aspects of business, but exploring the potential to do that in this new world of digitally native securities, right? Like that would be an amazing opportunity. It's coming. It's super, super important. But with that said, that's going to happen 
in digitally native securities. And I want to emphasize why I'm saying the word securities, because it's a regulated business. It is a regulated business. And the reason you hear crypto proponents running around saying, well, they're not securities and they should be treated differently. And we should have you know, different rules for tokens and, and ICOs shouldn't be. It's because they don't want the restrictions on getting any scam across that they possibly want. Some of them, again, are doing it for the best possible intentions. I genuinely believe that our project is going to change the world and we want to be able to access funding. And isn't it frustrating that we have to follow the rules like everybody else had to follow? Like That's like the commercial driver's license dynamic. You want to raise money for a business opportunity. There are rules around it. Are the rules perfect? Are the rules overly intrusive? They're definitely not perfect and they're possibly too intrusive. But deciding that you're going to engage in criminality because you don't like the rules, that changes the parameter and reintroduces this risk that we started at the very beginning of governments spooling up, turning the battleships, saying, here's a threat, and you're hearing it. The FBI is targeting it now. The Department of Defense is targeting it now. The State Department is targeting it now. The securities regulators are targeting it now. Guess what, guys? You stood up and you shouted from the top of your, your, of your lungs. You can't stop us. Here they come. So, sorry, let me just I reemphasize this part, though. Obviously, we have inflation here. It has arrived. Everybody's experiencing it. Like you said, there's places in the world where that is life and death. It isn't life and death here. How does that play out over the so next... So I think it depends on how we respond, right? And, and unfortunately, what's happening is, is that the Federal Reserve feels backed into a corner because they adopted the language of, we believe this is transitory. We believe that this is people waking up overnight, dealing with the arthritic conditions of trying to restart there's going to be some stretching. It's going to be slower to get itself back up, et cetera. And did we make our, our condition worse by keeping financing rates very low, enabling excess demand, punching through a crazy amount of stimulus into the system? And did much of that stimulus, we're going to, of course, see these headlines emerge where there was fraud and there were those who were closest to the money that were able to get it first and all sorts of bad behavior occurred as always does, right? But what we're engaged in is, is, is that we've gotten to the point that it is unacceptable for the central banks to sit there and not do something. They can't say the, the, the transitory narrative has been lost, right? Where that transitory narrative, I think people, I, again, I'm never entirely sure if it was willful misunderstanding or if it's intentional. The transitory narrative was tied to inflationary rates, right? So the 7.5% that we're seeing, in my view, very clearly should naturally retreat back towards below 2%. The conditions of the 1970s, that outward shift in the population, that outward shift in aggregate demand, they just don't exist today. People are over-indebted. The population is not growing rapidly. The labor force is not growing rapidly. The population is older, which tends not to use credit to nearly the same degree. Like all of these dynamics are radically different than what you had in the 1970s. So I just don't see the sustained inflation. But the great irony is, is it has been sustained long enough that the central bankers and policymakers around the world are now undertaking what might actually be the single greatest austerity measures we've ever seen in our lifetimes. The 2011 dynamics around the euro crisis pale in comparison to what I think we're, we're beginning to see here. And that, to me, says that not only are we facing transitory inflation, but we're likely to see a rapid, rapid inward shift in aggregate demand with the loss of credit that is going to very meaningfully affect sectors of the economy that we tend to take for granted. And I, I think it's very scary what we're engaged in. And, and the great irony, of course, and, and others on Twitter do a better job of doing this, like Joey Politano is all over this. You know, the only mechanism that exists for the Fed to use interest rate policy to target aggregate demand is to crash the economy. Like that's all they can do. They can't like raise interest rates and suddenly oil production goes up. Like it does, that doesn't work that way. So we're asking the, you know, you can't raise interest rates and suddenly the ports of Los Angeles clear because we got more productive at it, right? Like that's just not the way the system works. The tools that we're using are like, it's like a machete to do surgery, right? Like, can you cut out the tumor? Yeah, but you're going to take their liver with it. I, you know, we're, we're making a terrible mistake in my opinion. And part of it is understandably being driven by the fact that trust in institutions has collapsed. 
So in an ideal world where you had control over the Federal Reserve policy, what would be the path without the mistake that you think they could follow? Well, fortunately, I am in control of Federal Reserve policy, as, as all of the Bitcoin <laughs> community knows. I also run the regulators and I'm largely responsible for enforcement actions. Busy day. Uh, let's pretend that's not true and I'm limited to control of the Fed. Right. <laughs> the point that I would make is, is that what we are actually facing is a temporary phenomenon. And as painful as it is, in many ways, the right thing to do is not to change the broad pricing of money across the system, and certainly not to engage in changing multiple variables at the same time, right? If you want to shrink the balance sheet, fine, give that a shot. Don't hike interest rates at the same time, right? Let's, let's try to isolate some variables for a change, right? Let's not assume that we know exactly what we're doing here. I just got off uh, a call with Grant Williams and Bill Fleckenstein, and Bill was very accurately bringing up this issue of central bank hubris, right? Now, now, I happen to think that it's less hubris and more incompetence. But the, the broader point that I would just raise is like, if you're trying to change something, you change one thing at a time. You don't like turn all the dials on your, on, on your stereo system when you're trying to tune it into a particular radio system or set a particular tone. So like, you don't change things all at the same time. You isolate. We've shown no desire to do that. And, I, and I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why. The, the second thing that I would suggest is that there are non-interest rate measures that you can engage in that are far more effective. So, for example, if your concern is that there is a shortage of toilet paper or a shortage of particular products, then you as the government can do exactly what you would do in times of war which is to suspend things like a patent and say, you know what, you're going to have to license somebody new to do this because you've not met the capacity needs. You can encourage a longer term solution, recognizing that there are short term problems associated with it. You want to keep cars on the road and reduce pressure on used autos? Suspend auto emission standards for two years, right? So that you're not yanking cars off because guess what? They have slightly more particulate matter coming out of the tailpipe. But again, that's not the Federal Reserve. So like what you're basically saying is, you know, what can the waiter do to solve the problems in the kitchen? Nothing, right? He can go back and yell a little bit and he can tell you he yelled at the chef and he can take something, you know, he can subsidize your meal, but he can't actually cook, right? He can't really speed up the kitchen in any meaningful way. And that sort of humility to me is what's lacking. Right. It's this need to stand up and say, hey, we're going to do something. And again, it's an institutional framework that is completely understandable, because if Jay Powell were to stand up and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I know this feels permanent. I know this feels disastrous, but we have to approach this from a degree of humility. There's only so much we can do. If they were to say that, most Americans would be like, wow, he must have been taken over by aliens. But that was remarkably prudent. And about 15 <laughs> minutes later, he'd be fired and replaced by some charlatan who's like, no, I know the solution, right? Because it's a politically unacceptable statement. That's part of the challenge that exists right now is nobody can stand up and say, there's not really that much we can do about it. I'm sorry. I know it's uncomfortable. We did the best we could to smooth ourselves through this. Did we make mistakes? Absolutely. I, like, I honestly believe that most Americans would really like to hear that, but I also know the trial lawyers would love it because every like trial lawyer on the planet would start a civil or criminal lawsuit against, you know, if Cuomo came forward and was like, you know what, like I made the best judgment available to me at the time, but in hindsight, it clearly was a mistake to put old people into nursing homes with COVID. Guess what? He is getting sued forever, right? It's like, it's never going away. That's the society that we live in. And so we're all very focused, like, the Fed is screwing things up. The politicians are screwing things up. The really sad, sober message I have to send is we put them in office, right? We're screwing up. We as a society need to do a much better job. And that involves every single one of us. And I know it's hard and I know it's lazy. And I know I'm sitting from a position of privilege relative to 99.9% .9 of the audience and offering a lecture that nobody wants to hear. They're like, man, we have to do better. 
This is um this is a little bit off topic, and I and I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds here. But you and um, Last Bear Standing had some really great takes when Evergrande was deep in the muck, but they're still deep in the muck. Yesterday, I think it was China Court freezes 157 million of Evergrande assets over misconstruction payments. I know we're um this is this is far removed from everything else we've talked about, but it does feel very. I, when I was in China years and years ago, I showed a friend uh, the big short and they were like, oh my God, it's like here. And I was like, yeah. yeah. And so this feels like that moment, but maybe it isn't. I don't know. I, I'd, I'd love, I'd just love to hear what you're thinking these days after some of the drama has subsided for now. Well, I, I think that's, you know, again, the great irony. And, and again, I'm repeating some of the lines from my, my last discussion, but when you're constantly fighting fires and putting out fires, Right. There's this overwhelming desire to occasionally just say, oh, thank God I get an evening off. Right. Like, you know, Al my good friend Alex Gurevich just recently wrote a book called The Trades of March that literally like walks through the internal chats from his trading activity from March of 2020, which he navigated quite successfully. And, and it's a phenomenal book. It's called The Trades of March. I encourage anyone who's at all interested in, in trading to, to read that book. At the same time, Alex collapsed on his bathroom floor, passed out, and his wife had to call the doctors, right? Because while he's navigating this extraordinarily well, he's like just physically exhausted. The stress of not getting enough sleep, everything else, the personal dynamics, right? Like everyone wants to imagine hedge fund managers or the masters of the universe. Alex has two kids and a wife, and he's dealing with a global pandemic, and, and his kids are no longer in school. And like, are they going to get deathly ill? Are they all going to die of COVID? All the stuff that everyone else is dealing with. And at the same time, he's trying to trade on a 24-hour schedule, right? So like, and again, the world's smallest violin is now playing for a hedge fund manager, right? I just <laughs> want to emphasize this. But that's the same stuff that Jerome Powell is dealing with when he's trying to navigate that. If you think he went to bed at, at nine o'clock after, you know, casually drinking his chamomile tea and then woke up at seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, sat and had orange juice and toast with his wife, like that was not what was happening to Jerome Powell in that time period. He was frantically trying to solve problems so that people were able to pay their bills, deal with that, those dynamics, right? And the minute things start to calm down, People start screaming at him like, oh, you totally screwed this up and you did, you should have done this better and et cetera, et cetera. And like, there's this overwhelming desire, anyone who's been a parent or, you know, has, has had to deal with this, there is a point at which you're just like, man, can I just have one night where I don't have to deal with some of this stuff? That temptation is somewhat overwhelming from a regulatory standpoint, because when things start going well... Okay, now I get to take that vacation. Now I get to, you know, do the things that I feel that I am entitled to as a relatively affluent, successful member of our society that people seem to think is completely unreasonable for me to do. I mean, let's let's be clear. Jerome Powell is a centimillionaire and we complain when he goes on vacation. Just think about that for a second. Right? Like if we had a hundred million dollars, my guess is we'd like to go on vacations too, right? <laughs> Admittedly, as a public servant, et cetera, I, I'm not an apologist for the Fed. I'm not an apologist for Jerome Powell. But like, we have ridiculously high standards, unreasonable standards that we apply, I would argue, unfairly. They are doing their best. They're being asked to do too large of a job. That is why when you ask me, what would I do as the Fed? The answer is say to you, honestly, there are things I can fix and there's things I can't. And the vast majority of things you're going to ask me to do all I can do is screw it up worse, right? Like I can put a bandage on it, but unless we actually get in there with bacitracin, et cetera, and clean it up, man, you're going to develop gangrene. So let's actually make the hard choices. Let's deal with it, et cetera. Because that's politically unacceptable, we've backed ourselves into this corner. And it's also part of the reason why you see the, the appeal of the crypto dynamics, right? Because every crypto fraud on the planet is out there saying, here's the solution, right? From my mom's basement, I've figured out the, the secrets of, you know, global finance. And it's also totally clear. That's just, it's just not true. What effect do you think the increase in passive investing and indexing has had on the market at large? Um, so this is going to be surprising, but none at all, really. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so for your listeners are probably less exposed to my, my broader traditional finance theories. 
those few who are tuning in to listen to me specifically may be familiar with it. But just, just very quickly, what I'm really well known for is the work that I've done on the impact of passive and systematic investing in traditional financial markets. So things like Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera, where you're buying an index fund. The most important thing for people to understand is, is that a market doesn't represent information, it represents transactions. So what you're seeing when you look at a screen for the price of Apple is inevitably whatever the last transaction was and potentially what the bid and the ask are that are effectively people waiting to come together and transact, right? Cross those two. When you introduce passive players, they're not actually passive because the definition of passive requires you to never transact. And Vanguard and BlackRock transact every single day. When you give them money for your 401k, they're forced to transact. What you've actually signed up for is an active manager who has the world's simplest algorithms. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. At what valuation? Doesn't matter. How much cash should I hold? None, because that's not a choice that you have available to you. So that change in rule set, as it has become more and more dominant, and on my estimates, about 44% of the U.S. equity markets are now passive. About 27% of the U.S. debt markets are now passive in their construction in terms of these super simple algorithms. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell, being the dominant marginal player in the markets. If you simulate that change, if you introduce that player who holds no cash and buys or sells simply on an instruction that's coming through with no thought process to it other than that underlying dynamic, you can get a sense for how it affects markets. My analysis is that the growth of passive has significantly inflated valuations and it has created conditions of illiquidity that cause the extraordinary price movements that we're seeing in markets, ranging from things like meme stocks like AMC or, or GameStop to the somewhat ridiculous behavior where Facebook can make an earnings announcement into an ostensibly efficient market and see $200 billion of market cap wiped away in a matter of seconds, right? Nothing like that has ever happened before. And I very strongly believe and the evidence is increasingly in my favor, whether those are academics who are now coming out and supporting my work, or whether that is the empirical data that we're ultimately seeing, the fact that we're within a few percentage points, nowhere close to a really deep bear market, and we're seeing degrees of liquidity vanish in the market that we've never seen before. We're actually, by the way, at levels of liquidity in the US equity markets that are approaching the depths of March 2020, even as we're way above those levels, right? Like people cannot transact efficiently right now. And that's part of why you're seeing the extent of the moves that you're seeing. So I think the impact is quite significant. And, and I think the evidence is very, very clear that we have created a system that I liken to driving a car uphill with no brakes, right? It feels great as long as prices are going higher. As they go down, if the instructions are sent to the passive players, sell, they will not stop and say, are you sure you want to do that? Because prices seem pretty attractive now. And that behavior in an illiquid market is potentially quite catastrophic. God, that, yeah, there's a... I, maybe this is just every day in finance, but it sure feels like there's a lot of scary shit going, going on right now. There is an element of that is the description of every day. And I, and I want to emphasize this, and I've said this elsewhere, and I'll repeat it till I'm, you know, till my dying breath. Maybe it'll be my deathbed quote, right? The bearish case always sounds more intelligent. And part of the reason why is because we are wired for that. If I come to you and I say, hey, Cass, guess what? There's berries in the bush over there. You'd, be, you'd say, oh, that's important. I'm going to make a mental note of that. I've got a map of the territory. There's berries in that bush, but I'm not hungry right now, but I'm going to keep that in reserve. Thank you for sharing that information with me, Mike. But if I say to you, hey, Cass, there's a saber-toothed tiger in that bush. You will immediately react. Right now, if we're in New York City and it's you know 2022 or Los Angeles and it's 2022, you'll almost immediately figure out that I'm joking with you. But if you and I were on a, a, a you know safari trip on the African savanna and we're walking along, I'm like, holy shit, Cass, there is a lion in that bush. You would freeze 
instantaneously. You would take that as the most important possible message. And I'll go a step further and say, like, I sound like a somewhat credible guy. Your audience doesn't realize I, that nothing I say should be taken seriously. But the point that I would make is if I were to tell you that there is actually a meteor storm coming tomorrow with an extraordinarily heightened risk of meteorites striking the earth in the vicinity of Los Angeles, you by and large will dismiss it. You may do a Google search to see if I'm full of crap. If it turns out that I've managed to seed the Google page, the Google search pages with meteor storm incoming, highly you know, elevated risk of meteorites striking passengers or pedestrians, I guarantee you when you walk out of your house the next morning, you're going to look up on the sky. Guarantee it because that's how we're wired as human beings. And so I just always want to caution people that like the bearish case always sounds more intelligent. Part of what is unique about what I'm saying also though is because of the dynamics of passive investing, it's the same phenomenon that we see with hodling in crypto, right? What you're talking about actually is creating increased inelasticity. If I tell you to hodl, hold on for dear life, don't respond to price signals and sell, all I've done is raise the inelasticity. And that's functionally what's happening in financial markets. The introduction of passive players raises the elastic inelasticity of the marketplace. Mike, is there anything else that you that you think is important to uh, let the listeners know or? Uh... No, I think anyone who's made it through this far is 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 either listening for you know shits and giggles <laughs> or uh, you, you know um, in desperate need of help. I will um, I, I I I will let it go at that point. But honestly, it, it's. Uh, I, I do want to offer a shout out in the opposite direction, right? I'm a tourist in this space. I can't devote the time and energy that you guys have to trying to formulate a clear and concise and informed view about the players and the various forms of fraud and the behaviors that are going on. And what you guys have done, I think, is actually an incredible service for which you are highly unlikely to be, to be compensated, but is nonetheless a public service that that um, I think is underappreciated. And, and I do want to emphasize that. And I'm thrilled that you guys invited me on to talk. Ah, the, it means the world hearing that from you, uh, Mike. So thank, thank you very much. And, uh, and look forward to having you on again sometime soon, whenever, whenever. I'll, I'll, always happy to hang out with you guys. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. But as a final point, have you ever just thought about what does it all mean? I know, I know that's a little meta. I know it might feel like it's a rhetorical question, but I just want to say that I think it all amounts to ratings, ratings and reviews of podcasts. So if you could leave a rating, leave a review, positive one, hopefully, I think that kind of solves everything. So thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon.